Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's only Tuesday, but it's already a terrible week to be Rishi Sunak. Today, his flagship policy on Rwanda faces a crucial vote in Parliament as even the man who used to be his immigration minister and was one of his closest friends in politics says it will fail. It is a weak bill that won't work. I respect the Prime Minister, of course I do, and our disagreement is on this issue, but it is an absolutely totemic one to the future of the Conservative Party and to the public. With the future of the Conservatives hanging in the balance, a civil war has broken out on Tory benches. Yesterday, five groups on the right of the party and the more centrist camp were all plotting to kill the Prime Minister's Rwanda bill. Coming back to the bill overall provides a partial and incomplete solution. The feeling very much in the meeting is that the government will be best advised to pull the bill and to come up with a revised version that works better than this one, which has so many holes in it. The row comes at a time when some Tory MPs and even a few ministers have made it known that they miss Boris Johnson and the Prime Minister's many rivals are already lining up to replace him. Do we fight for sovereignty or do we let our party die? Now, I may not have always found the right words in the past, Madam Deputy Speaker, but I refuse, I refuse to sit by and allow us to fail. Whilst Tory MPs were plotting against him in Westminster yesterday afternoon, the Prime Minister was a few miles away, facing an interrogation at the COVID inquiry and heckling from bereaved families. Somebody at the meeting said, good working people pay for their children to eat and don't want freeloaders. I did not say those words. I don't recollect anyone saying those words. Even before he faced the inquiry, polls showed the country had turned against Rishi Sunak's handling of the pandemic. So how did he do? And how strong is his leadership now looking? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the COVID inquiry. Sunak on trial. 
I'm Tom Peck. I am the political sketch writer for The Times, which I have been for all of two and a half weeks. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you very much. But I have been doing the same job largely for the last eight years. I was before this, I've been a political sketch writer uh, for eight years for The Independent. So I have been up close and personal with all of the extremely mad political times of the last decade. Now you've actually been watching Paddington, where, where this <laughs> COVID inquiry is taking place. Just give us a sense, what's it like to be in the room? Is is there a sense of spectacle around Sunak giving evidence? Um, yeah, it's quite a strange place. It's very swanky. I mean, there is a free coffee machine, although today um, my cappuccino emerged entirely black. The free coffee machine has run out of milk. I wish I had considered to put in my sketch that what I should have said is that even the coffee machine is pretending black is white, but I didn't manage to get that gag in and I uh, I regret it. Do you um, notice it's... now though? Bravo. <laughs> it's quite, a, I mean, it's weird because there's like an annex of 35 seats for the media and then you get taken into the main room in groups of five for shifts and you can't use your phone and you can't take your laptop. So you sit there with notepad and pen, which is pretty old fashioned. You know, you've got BBC's wow. political editor Chris Mason today. There's all that stuff going on in, in Westminster with the Rwanda vote, and he's there away from his mobile phone for two full hours all morning. There are lots and lots and lots of lawyers. I mean, I've covered some big court cases before. I mean, I actually did the Pistorius trial in South Africa, and I, I've been to lots of big court cases. I've not really been to anything quite like this. And then, of course, in the corner is where whoever is sort of taking their turn in what feels like a dock, though it is, of course, not a dock, Hmm. to be cross-examined. And there was such a build-up towards Rishi Sunak appearing before this inquiry. So many questions bereaved families wanted asked. And yet on the day that it happened, it wasn't even the toughest thing he was facing necessarily. <laughs> I mean, you know, while there was the spectacle of the COVID inquiry in Paddington, a few miles away in Westminster... There was all sorts of plotting and intrigue afoot. Yeah, well, that's why it was quite strange to watch because Rishi Sunak is, seems very happy talking about the decisions that he made during the pandemic rather than face up to what's going on in Westminster where he doesn't really seem to be able to manage the problem very well. So he's sitting there giving evidence. And then in Westminster, the, the, the European research group, the sort of gang of very right-wing conservative MPs, have convened what is a de facto press conference to announce that they're not going to back his Rwanda deal. And that leaves him potentially in an extremely sticky situation. And if I was him, I would much rather be uh, cross-examined over potential failings in a pandemic rather than having to deal with what he clearly does not enjoy dealing with and isn't necessarily very good at dealing with, which is managing the Conservative Party and making sure his own MPs don't destroy him, which they are clearly plotting to do. And Tom, we've got used to, over the years, the ERG, the European Research Group, being the awkward squad, causing trouble for various leaders of the Tory party. Mm. But they weren't the only ones. As, the, as the, the day went on, there were several groups within the Conservatives who were meeting and plotting. How has Rishi Sunak somehow alienated so much of the party all at once? So, I mean, I think somebody described the Rwanda policy as like the sort of the reverse Goldilocks. It's too hot and too cold and, and, and nobody thinks it's just right, if you know what I mean. So there's, the, there's the, the ERG who think that essentially not enough human rights laws have been unilaterally overridden so that he won't just be able to, there will be too many objections and he won't be able to just deport people to Rwanda very easily. So it's not worth the paper that it's written on. And then there are moderate conservative MPs who, even if it doesn't succeed, 
just don't like the idea that you can unilaterally come out and declare Rwanda a safe country and say that these international laws don't necessarily apply to us. So it is not, it's not extreme enough for one lot, it's too extreme for the other lot, and he's in the middle trying to reconcile these two irreconcilable groups to a certain extent on his own. And while he will have spent the weekend preparing for the COVID inquiry, we know there was lots of desperate lobbying going on to try and bring the different factions of the Tory party around to get them to support the Rwanda bill. There was also, though, rumours going around about potential leadership challenges. Anyone listening will probably be rolling their eyes thinking, not again. How serious do you think those rumours are? I do not think there will be a credible leadership challenge that removes Rishi Sunak, that means that Rishi Sunak is not the prime minister who fights the election. What is tricky about this, and this is an amazing statistic, but if you think about it, it is correct. Only once in the last 50 years has a conservative prime minister lost a general election. Like John Major in 1997 is the only time that has happened since what, 1974. So there is no playbook really for what these guys are meant to do as they stare down the barrel of defeat for a year or more. And of course, they are now very used to doing something which they only used to do in the most extreme circumstances, which is to remove a leader. Now, I am not convinced that anyone in their right mind, although lots of them are not in their right mind, would want the job now only to lose it in a year's time, especially given that lots of the likely candidates possibly don't even have seats that are safe enough to lead the Conservative Party. So I wouldn't take this noise too seriously. I mean, a lot of the time, these noises are made just to put pressure on the Prime Minister, not because it's actually going to happen. If he loses the Rwanda vote, does it just make him a completely lame duck? I mean, I feel like he is a lame duck regardless, and he has made grave political mistakes by allowing himself to be so defined by a policy that by his own admission, he's only meant to be a deterrent. You know, that the, the problem is this policy is uh, like... <laughs> It's only really there for show. So even at the point at which it happens, there's no proof in any way that it will actually deter anybody at all. And here is Rishi Sunak out on a limb, massively exposed, trying to bring in a policy that is probably going to fail, even if he does manage to bring it in. But the, the, the specific politics of the situation, i.e. one year short of an election, that they really just, barring a miracle, are not going to win... It's hard to talk of it in terms of it being Rishi Sunak's sort of live or die moment because, I mean, as they say in The Simpsons, he's, he's kind of already dead. Good morning, my lady. Today's witness is the Prime Minister. I swear by the Gita that the evidence I shall give, evidence I shall give shall, be the truth, shall be the truth, the whole truth, the whole truth and, nothing but the truth. and nothing but the truth. Stepping back from the, the chaos in, in Westminster and going back to, to the inquiry, it began this morning with an apology, just as Boris Johnson had done. Rishi Sunak started by apologising to everybody, really. I just wanted to start by saying how deeply sorry I am to all of those who lost loved ones, family members through the pandemic, and also all those who suffered in the various different ways throughout the pandemic and as a result of the actions were taken. I've thought a lot about... Most members of the government, in fact, all of them, I believe, Michael Gove, Matt Hancock, Boris Johnson and now Rishi Sunak, have used the first question they've been asked in their evidence to issue a public apology. 
I must say I found Rishi Sunak's apology unconvincing. That doesn't mean he doesn't mean it. But we all know that lots and lots of people died and governments made difficult decisions. And the scripted apology, if you like, is not likely to placate the, the relatives, the bereaved relatives of those people who died, who, who really do blame the government for their relatives' very, very, very tragic deaths. And I think Rishi Sunak probably didn't really want to be giving that apology because he gave a defence of all of the decisions that he's made. And arguably, previous politicians have actually been better than him at giving the insincere apology, at pretending to be um, gravely sorry for all the things that everyone thinks that they did wrong. And I think he's quite proud of what he achieved during COVID, believe it or not, and therefore finds it quite hard to, to apologise for it when he doesn't necessarily mean that apology. One of the, the observations a lot of people made watching him today, though, was how surprising it was to see somebody who has a reputation for being a details guy say again and again and again that he couldn't recall a lot of very important meetings, a lot of very important details. No, I, I don't recall either of those conversations that you refer to. I can't specifically recall the analysis that was presented. I, I'll be honest, though, I can't precisely recall. You know, I can't precisely recall that particular meeting. I, I can't comment on the particular meeting because I don't recall it. I mean, I don't recall seeing that email. I mean, I think there were lots and lots and lots and lots of meetings and brief chats in the Downing Street Garden with Boris Johnson. Everybody in these positions has selective amnesia to a certain extent. There was obviously a clash between public health and economic and fiscal issues. In that debate, what was the general position of the Chancellor of the Exchequer? Well, I don't think I ever referred to it as a clash. In a lot of the reporting that was done while the pandemic was was still happening, you know, the Sunday Times Insight team particularly broke a lot of the, the stories that are now being investigated by the COVID inquiry about Boris Johnson's handling uh, and the government's handling uh, of, of the pandemic. They seem to imply in their reporting that Rishi Sunak was sort of the most anti-lockdown member of government. Was that the version of him that we saw today? Definitely, yes. But the, the way in which he tried to argue it is that COVID was a balancing act between harm to the economy and harm to public health. Did you specifically say to him, Prime Minister, my position as the Chancellor's Exchequer is a lockdown is not warranted I think this is the wrong decision. No, is that what you told him? No, no. The debate, and as the I think the record shows and the evidence shows, the point I made to him, which he did consider but ultimately disagreed with me on, was to consider whether it was necessary to start not shut non-essential retail as part of that lockdown. The person whose job it was to do the balancing really was Boris Johnson. He was not a balancer. It was his job to make the case for the economy at all times. And then other people had to weigh it up against the, the health aspects, so the, risk to, like, the risk to the economy, the, the risk of closing schools, the risk of shutting down whole sectors versus the risk of death. He certainly stuck with his anti-lockdown views on, on a lot of the things that he was questioned about. He wasn't as, as vociferous uh, in his 
criticism of, of the way some of the lockdowns were, were carried out as he had been in the past. So all the way through the inquiry, he was asked questions about a, a particular article in The Spectator where he le- really seemed to let rip. Yeah, and that is a tr- that is a tricky question because although he doesn't see me at the moment, Rishi Sunak is actually a pretty good politician. To emerge from the pandemic when he was chancellor with his reputation enhanced, he did it in a chaotic government. And then that had to pivot into, not long after, a Tory leadership campaign. And he felt it was very important if he wanted to win that campaign by presenting himself as a kind of anti-lockdown sceptic, if you like. It involved giving an interview to The Spectator where he talked at great length about how he, sometimes he felt like he was the only person in the room who's saying, well, look, what's happening with schools, what's happening to the economy, and that nobody wanted to know. I think he found himself saying that to The Spectator because it wasn't a completely dishonest way to badge what he had done in the pandemic, which was to always make the case for the economy. And he did it to try and win the Tory leadership contest, which he didn't win, of course. He lost to Liz Truss. And then that made life very difficult for him when he then tried to sort of argue the opposite of the contents of that interview to the COVID inquiry today. And in the Spectator article to which I've already referred you, 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 you state that when you say this, it's, it's quoted, in every brief, we tried to say, let's stop the fair narrative. It was always wrong from the beginning. I constantly said it was wrong. Um, what, what was that about? Again, from an economic perspective, we are a consumption-driven economy. And if you have a situation like this where we've actively discouraged or shut down consumption sectors from operating, once they reopen, it was a point of concern for me and, and for anyone thinking about the economy. That is politics, you know. It's a, it's a messy business and it leads people to saying things that can make them look a bit foolish. One of the things that people have, have questioned an awful lot since he, he gave his evidence was um, the question of WhatsApps, which have come up again and again during this inquiry. <laughs> Every minister seems to have suddenly lost theirs. Um, how did he explain what had happened to his and, and was it convincing? All of them have lost their WhatsApps. They've accidentally deleted them. I actually found that my patience snapped with it a bit today. I mean, I found it really quite annoying. And I'm not sure why this sort of pretend tech phobia is allowed. I mean, his excuse was that I've changed my phone. I changed my phone multiple times during the period. You don't now have access to any of the WhatsApps that you did send during the time of the crisis, do you? No, uh, I don't. I've changed my phone multiple times over the past few years. And as that has happened, the messages have not come across. I'm not a prolific user of WhatsApp in the first instance. If if, if he had said, (laughs) I I took multiple trains during the period and so I accidentally left my bag on all of them. I mean, after the first bag loss, you would wise up. And if you're claiming that you've, you've, you've deleted, you've changed your phone, I don't know, six times in two years, and every single time you've made this same mistake that most 80-year-olds don't manage to make at all. It gave him, and he knows this, the wriggle room to pretend that, what he did pretend on a number of occasions, that in the big chaos of March 2020, when the Prime Minister has been quite rightly accused of, of running an operation that's falling apart and of agreeing with the last person who spoke to him and everything going wrong, the fact that nobody could see any of Sunak's real-time communications from that period, 
allows him to pretend that sort of he didn't see any of it. He just saw a government that was responding quickly and almost obediently to changing scientific advice. And I do not think, I mean, this is speculation. I might be wrong. I do not think his WhatsApp messages, were we fortunate enough to have them, would bear that out. But we don't. <laughs> and he, he get, it's so weird because, he, where was he? Like three weeks ago, he was sitting at an AI conference with Elon Musk, like sort of pretending yeah. to be a tech bro. And now he's pretending that he doesn't know how to back up his iPhone. Well, come on, mate. No one believes you. <laughs> uh, and, and you're right. It did allow him to... There was a very, very awkward part. He seemed very supportive of Boris Johnson all the way through this. You know, we thought he might throw him under a bus, but he seemed to be supporting him all the way through. There was a, there was a moment where... You know, when, whenever we've seen other people in Number 10 being questioned about at the COVID inquiry, whether it's Lee Kane or Dominic Cummings, they've talked about the dysfunction in Number 10. Even Boris Johnson admitted that it was a toxic culture. And yet, when Rishi Sunak's asked about it, he seems to think it was perfectly fine. My interactions with Number 10 and the Cabinet Office during this period uh, felt fine to me. Again, I go back to broadly, was I able to input advice to the Prime Minister or when decisions were being made. I felt I was. I didn't feel I'd been shut out or not able to participate. Yeah, I mean, Rishi Sunak is having a tough time trying to lead the, the conser- not the country, the Conservative Party at the moment. And I think it blinds people to the fact that he is a much cannier politician than he's given credit for. There is almost nobody in public life, short of the people who broke all the Partygate stories, who has done more to rid the country of Boris Johnson than Rishi Sunak. But he has done far less than almost anybody who is technically an opponent of his to publicly criticise him. Coming up, Rishi Sunak is quizzed about eat out to help out. And did he preside over the pro-death squad in Whitehall? We'll have more from the COVID inquiry in just a moment. Tom, in earlier sessions of the COVID inquiry, we'd heard how government scientists and and advisors had referred to Rishi Sunak as Dr. Death during the pandemic. He wasn't asked about that directly, surprisingly, but he was asked about the Treasury being known as the pro-death squad. There is material which shows that the Treasury was pejoratively associated with death. Some officials in Number 10 described the Treasury as the pro-death squad. Were you aware that the Treasury was being referred to in those terms? Uh, You may not have been aware. Uh, I I wasn't, and I do not think it is a fair characterization Indeed. Uh, on the incredibly hardworking people that I was lucky to be supported by at the Treasury. What did you make of that? Well, this may only be me, but when you hear these phrases that were passed around, or or things that are like like when Boris Johnson, when we find that Boris Johnson said that he might spray a hairdryer up his nose to kill the virus or inject himself with COVID on live TV. I sort of don't really mind that people had these mad conversations in private or spoke frankly in private, especially as nine times out of 10, they were backed up by people taking quite risk averse decisions. And if you consider the pandemic being 
Chris Whitty, Sir Patrick Valance and other people. It's their remit to control the virus. And it's Rishi Sunak's job to maximise the economy. I'm kind of not surprised that those scientists thought that the Treasury were pro-COVID when they weren't. And I don't, I don't think that necessarily makes him Dr. Death, but I can see why in highly pressured atmosphere that that moniker might do the rounds. One of the naughtiest questions for him during the session was always going to be about his policy of eat out to help out. You know, we've heard government scientists describe it as eat out to help out the virus. There's been a lot of criticism about it since. How did he cope with the questioning around that policy? The point of the public inquiry is to um, learn lessons for future pandemics. A future government is not necessarily going to need you know, years-long inquiry in order to tell them, well, you don't necessarily... If there's an airborne virus that thrives on close proximity between people and also it relentlessly targets people who are obese, a government in that situation should not necessarily subsidise people's Big Macs, but only if they eat them in the restaurant, not if they come through the drive through it seems basically insane. And that was, of course, put to Rishi Sunak. And when it gets put to him, you know, that's when you rub your hands and think, right, well, this is the bit that matters now. Given that the eat out to help out scheme encouraged the coming together of different households in indoor spaces, which it did, of course, in restaurants, why was that plan not put by the Treasury in front of SAGE, in front of the Secretary of State for Health and or the Chief Medical Officer. So the first thing to say is why, why do eat out to help out at all? No, 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 please. There is a method to my madness. This was a, a very reasonable, sensible policy intervention to help safeguard those jobs in that safe reopening. That was my view. I didn't believe that it was a risk. And he also said that all of the risks, if you like, i.e. the risks of everyone going back into restaurants, they had prior to him announcing the policy or even working out the policy, had been declared, like restaurants had been declared safe by the scientists, by Chris Whitty, by Patrick Valance. His scheme was in order to persuade people to capitalise on the newfound freedoms, if you like, that they had been given. And of course, it was put to him that, well, Okay, that's fine. But if you encourage people to go into restaurants, it's all very well saying restaurants are safe, but your policy caused people to be... I don't, I don't know if you can remember. I mean, I You're remember. changing behaviours. It, it caused people to be queuing up outside the fish and chip shop on a Tuesday night. And some people went out for dinner every single night of the week, didn't they? Oh, I think it was mm. valid Monday to Thursday. And, you know, people used to share receipts on Twitter about how much they'd like about they'd had 200 quid out of the government this week because they'd absolutely hammered Eat Out to Help Out. So it certainly persuaded more people to go back into restaurants than would otherwise be the case. But when that was put to him, he said... So the idea was very clearly to have something that was temporary to elicit the behavioural response, and that was, that was always uh, meant to be the case. So it, it was about behavioural response in part. It wasn't just about the fiscal support for the sector. You, I, I, you've just said... I mean, that, that's exactly right. Just because people were given their freedoms back... If there was nothing there to persuade them into using those freedoms because they were a bit frightened to use them, then the thing that he was trying to achieve through the policy would have been pointless. 
Although he did admit that he didn't consult the scientists on this, there was no scientific modelling around it. And obviously, although the rules had changed, they changed based on where the scientists thought behaviour would be, and they thought there'd be a reluctance to go out. So he was introducing a policy which would change behaviours, but didn't think he had to put that past any scientist before introducing it. Well, although my understanding is that he said he he announced the policy and then there was a full month gap before the policy came into effect. And in that entire month, nobody raised objections to it, to him. I mean, that's what he said. If that is not the case, then he's been dishonest there. But I, but he said that very, very, very clearly. They were not sort of politicians' words where they're, where they're saying, I don't recall this or something. He said that extremely clearly. And then, and then we, as we know, that we know that Chris Whitty described the policy as eat out to help the virus. But he said that after eat out to help out took off maybe more than he'd foreseen. What did you think were the toughest parts for him? Were there any moments where you thought he struggled? Well, there were two separate bites, if you like, at the Marcus Rashford cherry, where, uh, as you will probably, as you will probably the recall... preschool there dinners. Was, yeah, there was a big row about whether or not they should subsidise free school meals for the most vulnerable during the school holidays. And in, in, in the end, they, they buckled, but not without having a big political row, which they shouldn't have had. And potentially Rishi Sunak being on the wrong side of that political row. And, and, he, and he found those, aren't, those questions really difficult to answer. You'll recall, Prime Minister, that um, Marcus Rashford, the, the footballer, um, he campaigned for holiday food vouchers for children who were entitled to free school meals. And an extract from Sir Patrick Vance's diary refers to a meeting on the 13th of June 2021. But the point is, ultimately, they did buckle and they did pay. And Marcus Rashford won his row with the government, as he was always going to. They did ask him repeatedly about a particular phrase that referred to, to people as freeloaders whose children would be, would be benefiting from school, free school meals. And Sir Patrick has suggested that somebody at the meeting said good working people pay for their children to eat and don't want freeloaders. I did not say those words. I don't recollect anyone saying those words. He says he didn't say it. Other people have said there were only, what, three people in the meeting, one of whom, Patrick Valance, was the guy who wrote down that someone said that. Rishi Sunak said very clearly, I did not say that. Whether Believing those words is everybody's free choice. He also said nobody in government did, which would seem to directly contradict Patrick Vallance. Yeah, look, I mean, how do you... Quite so, so often in journalism, a story hits the point at which you have mm. a denial, you have an accusation, and no further light can be shed because you have, you have reached the point at which your head is against the brick wall and it's just a choice of who you believe. And Tom, one of the issues that a lot of the, the bereaved families in particular wanted to talk about in this session with Rishi Sunak was the idea of a circuit breaker in the autumn or, you know, the bringing on a second lockdown. So a lot of people have said, you know, the first lockdown, they understand nobody had ever dealt with a problem quite like this. There was a lot of trying to work out what to do for the very first time. But by the time that second lockdown, people say should have been introduced in the autumn, 
you know, we had a sense of what COVID could do, and yet it was delayed again and again and again. And a lot of the families blame Rishi Sunak for that because he was the one sort of lobbying. So they've always blamed him. How did he deal with all the questioning around that autumn? It's well documented that there was a meeting prior to the decision not to introduce the circuit breaker lockdown, although they did eventually introduce a second lockdown, but, but arguably too late, where Boris Johnson brought in um, Carl Hennigan and, and Dr. Gupta and, um, and Anders Tegnell, the Swedish head of public health, who had managed Sweden's um, COVID response without any formal lockdowns at all. These were quite controversial epidemiologists by this point. Very much so. And the, and the question is whether Boris Johnson had decided he didn't want to do a circuit breaker and therefore had deliberately brought in epidemiologists who he knew were telling him it was a bad idea to give him the political cover to not do it. And when that was essentially put to Rishi Sunak, he just said, well, look, it's not a crime. It didn't strike me as odd and I think entirely reasonable for the prime minister to seek a diversity of opinion as he's coming to make decisions. A question for him, really, more than me. He talked about that meeting by describing it as a meeting he was invited along to, the, the, the Prime Minister had, had set up. At the time, a lot of the reporting, particularly in the Sunday Times, had said that he had invited these very controversial academics to come and present the, the Prime Minister with, with a different point of view because he was so keen to delay lockdown. I was right. invited to a meeting. I, I went to a meeting, but I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with hearing from a range of people. I think uh, that, that's I a healthy process. And if some people, I, 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 there's long evidence of in behavioural psychology about, you know, people getting into groupthink and the prime minister, if he wants to get out of consensus views, again, inherently, there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. All I the fact suggested. that they want from the- Their views were certainly known before they were heard. And that is the, the question which is not, it was not settled in Rishi Sunak's evidence. But the question of whether or not these guys were brought in just so that you could say, well, look, these epidemiologists told me not to do it, so I'm not going to do it, because he'd already decided. I think most fair-minded observers would look upon that meeting and think that is definitely what it was for, as opposed to what, how Rishi Sunak described it, which was to encourage a more, a more open debate. And it's not a crime for politicians to hear from a wide range of opinions. I don't think that answer really held much sway. And I don't think people listening to it in the room would have been persuaded by it either. The bereaved families have released a statement saying they were unhappy with the way that the inquiry had been conducted today. They felt um, they didn't get the answers they wanted from Rishi Sunak. Do you think that's fair? Do you think it's this, this particular session shift the dial in any way? Throughout the inquiry, the bereaved families are given special access to sit in the public gallery Um, and they hold up pictures of their lost loved ones. And I cannot imagine the suffering that they have been through. The manner in which so many people died was so horrendous for for the families because they tended to die alone without their family around. And these bereaved families consider the way in which they lost a loved one to be a direct consequence of the decisions made by politicians. I don't think there's anything that any of these politicians can say that will placate them. And they certainly, a lot of them, I think, I mean, I'm sort of speculating, but if the view is that Rishi Sunak was the anti-lockdown guy, whereas 
others were pro-lockdown and he was the one constantly arguing against it, they may feel he is more to blame than Boris Johnson, than, than Matt Hancock, than, than people who ultimately took the decisions to lock down, which he had argued against. So I am not surprised that they will forever be more aggrieved by the notion that the guy who's prime minister now, two years ago, was he would feel, I think, doing his job by arguing for the economy at all times. And I very much doubt they were placated by what they saw today. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Tom Peck, parliamentary sketch writer at The Times. You can find all of Tom's sketches at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producers today were Olivia Case and James Shield. The executive producer was Fiona Leach, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you enjoy this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.